This coming weekend, the Early Baseball Era Committee is scheduled to vote on the Hall of Fame induction of seven Negro League icons, including the great John Donaldson and my good friend, the late great Buck O'Neill. They're deserving. They're overdue. And they make up just a small sampling of the underrepresentation of Negro League baseball players in Cooperstown. This is the story of the complicated history and the hopeful future of the Negro Leagues and the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The year was 1990, and the late, great Buck O'Neill and Horace Peterson, who ran the Black Archives of Mid-America, they were eating in a small soul food diner in Kansas City called Maxine's. Maxine's restaurant couldn't have been very much bigger than my office, but the food was amazing, and it was one of those spots where virtually everybody in Black Kansas City went and hung out and ate because Miss Maxine could cook. And it was in Maxine's restaurant that Horace Peterson mentioned to Buck about an epiphany that he had and a desire to create some kind of edifice that would pay tribute to the Negro Leagues. Horace's original idea was to do a Negro Leagues Baseball Hall of Fame. And Buck O'Neill's response to him was, no, Horace, we don't need a Negro Leagues Hall of Fame. Any and everyone who played this game at its highest level should be recognized at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so Horace's suggestion or Horace's response to Buck was, well, Buck, what do you think we should do? Let's build a Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. After all, it was going to be much better for us to educate and substantiate what this history meant as opposed to building a pseudo Hall of Fame when you realize that you have a finite number of players that you would be able to induct into your Hall of Fame. But it had always been important for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to advocate on behalf of those very deserving players from the Negro Leagues to be considered for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. After all, we are their voice. But it also took the voice of a legendary major leaguer that I believe that if you were going to point to any one individual that ultimately helped open the door for Negro League players' inclusion in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, it would be the late, great Ted Williams. Ted Williams, as you may recall, upon his own induction speech in 1966, would use his platform to advocate on behalf of Negro League players, encouraging the Hall of Fame to consider inducting them. Baseball gives every American boy a chance to excel, not just to be as good as someone else, but to be better than someone else. This is the nature of man and the name of the game, and I've always been a very lucky guy to have worn a baseball uniform, to have struck out or to hit a tape measure home run. And I hope that someday the names of Satchel Page and Josh Gibson in some way can be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. 
five years later, Satchel Paige becomes the first from the Negro Leagues to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. And this year, on the 50th anniversary of old Satch being the first to break through, we were very fortunate to have his plaque on display here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to commemorate that milestone occasion. And the plaque was also at the K, and I got a chance to go to the K and spend time with his daughters there as they were celebrating their father for being the first to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame 50 years ago. At the time of us recording this episode of Black Diamonds, there are 35 players and or officials who are enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. We hope that there will be others because what we certainly understand is that there is absolutely an under-representation of Negro League players in the Hall of Fame. And don't get me wrong, I am ecstatic that we were able to get 17 more in in 2006, even amidst the great disappointment that I experienced when our very own Buck O'Neill and the late great Minnie Minoso don't get in. But it's hard not to be joyous because that's what our role is here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And we commend the work that all the historians have done and continue to do to help build the case that is necessary to gain this induction for Negro League players. Folks, to put it bluntly, they could play. And they could play as well as their contemporaries, and many of them believe that they were better than their white contemporaries. And so to try and build this case, really against all odds, because of an exclusionary practice that occurred in this country during an era of segregation that prompted a need for a separate league. But as I oftentimes remind people, this league, the Negro Leagues, would not take a backseat to any league. We are talking about some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game. And so it is incumbent upon this museum and the legion of historians who have taken the mantle and they've taken the baton and they too are working so diligently to pull together the research, all the data that is necessary. But please understand, research and data will never, ever be the real thing that quantifies how great the players were in the Negro Leagues. And, and so as we lose so many of the voices that were part of this story, We've lost Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin and Larry Doby and Ernie Banks and the legion of other Negro League players who really were there to attest to how good these players were. We now have to depend on statistics. And, and, and I understand the nature of statistics. They are important, probably more important in our game than any other sport. But we need to also make sure that these stories live on, too, to help bring those statistics to life, to help you realize in as much of a visual capacity as we can, as we, can, as we try to paint a picture through words and through oral histories, just how special these players are. 
And while I'm excited that there are seven Negro leaguers who are being considered for the National Baseball Hall of Fame this go around, you know, as we look at 2021 and we move toward December 5th for another historic announcement, I know in my hearts of hearts, there are still seven times seven that could easily be considered for the National Baseball Hall of Fame who absolutely deserve that coronation uh, as well. And these will be some anxious moments for me because our very own Buck O'Neill is one of those who is up for reconsideration to get into the National Baseball Hall of Fame 15 years after being bypassed the first time around. And uh, obviously, as a steward of the story, I'm excited for all of those who are being considered. But I'd be lying to y'all if I didn't tell you that it took even more special meaning for me, the fact that Buck O'Neill is back on the ballot. And so there are going to be some anxious moments leading up to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time on December 5th. I'm going to have to find some ways to occupy my time, occupy my mind. I have to prepare myself for what is certainly going to be an emotional roller coaster because I want to think in the vein that he's going to get in, but also understand the reality of a committee vote, that there is the possibility that he might not get in. And it takes me back to 2006, the day that I had to walk into a small conference room here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and tell my friend Buck O'Neill that he didn't get enough votes to get into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And that moment was far more devastating for me than it was for Buck, who handled it, well, he handled it in typical Buck O'Neill fashion, with the grace, class, and dignity that we all knew Buck O'Neill for and loved him for. And for me, it was a devastating moment. It was emotional. It was painful. It was frustrating. You know, it spanned the gamut in terms of emotions, and not just Buck. But also, as I look at the Golden Era Committee and I see the name of my friend, the late, great Minnie Minoso. Because you have to understand that Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso were the only two living names on that final ballot in 2006. And as we've talked with Miss Geraldine Day for this Hall of Fame, this special Hall of Fame segment of Black Diamonds, Leon Day was the last Negro Leaguer to know that he was going into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He lived long enough to know that he was going into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, he died six days after getting the news. So he could not be there physically to give his Hall of Fame induction speech, to bring that moment full circle to life, to be that living testament to the courageous players who called the Negro Leagues home, or as I like to say, who forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. We missed that opportunity. And we missed that opportunity in 2006 with Buck O'Neill and Minnie Minoso because they were both alive. And they would have brought that ceremony home. And, and while I'm still excited about the possibility, uh, my nerves are a little on edge right now 
because I think they both deserve to be in there. Uh, I hope that they will get their coronation along with several of the other Negro League players and even some of my friends on the Golden Era ballot as well. So you can see why there are going to be so many anxious moments for me. Coming up next, a conversation with the woman who was by the side of the last Negro League's legend to receive the call from Cooperstown during his lifetime. The widow of Hall of Famer Leon Day, Mrs. Geraldine Day, joins Black Diamonds. Here, every game? From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the SiriusXM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. Leon Day is inducted into the Hall of Fame as a pitcher. And he was indeed a great pitcher. But my friend, the legendary Buck O'Neill, believed that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher. And to put it in perspective, Monty Irvin says that Bob Gibson had nothing on Leon Day. Yeah, Leon Day was every bit as good, if not better, than the great Bob Gibson. That's scary. He was a competitor. He lived long enough to know, again, that he was going into the Hall of Fame. But that call really came too late. And that has been much the path of Negro League players. A little bit too late for so many of them. Geraldine Day met Leon Day when she was in her early 20s in the year 1960, a decade after Leon's playing career had ended. He was a legend of black baseball on the East Coast. But at the same time, he was so humble that it took two years for him to say to Geraldine that he had ever played professionally. He told her, I could play a little bit. The two married, and Geraldine remained by Leon's side through his final days in 1995, when he finally received the call from National Baseball Hall of Fame President Ed Stack. Mrs. Geraldine Day sat down with Bob Kendrick. I was getting ready to go up to the hospital, right? Yes. So, enough because Leon had called me and I had got up and he would call me and say, hey, hey, baby, guess what? I'm in. I'm in. I said, you know, early in the morning, too. But so, and I said, you in where? I'm in the Hall of Fame. I said, Leon. I said, you in the Hall of Fame? And I said, it ain't for 8 o'clock in the morning. People ain't even voted yet. Girl, them people don't play around like you do. He said, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and for our listeners, I think it's important to understand that when Leon Day gets the call notifying that he had gotten into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, he was in a Baltimore hospital at that time. Yes, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, he had all the ball players, the Philadelphia Stars and, and um, the other guys that uh, that played baseball in, in this era. And uh, he had uh, Max Manning, you know, Max Manning was oh, yeah. one of the teammates. And um, 
And he had hired all of those guys. He had hired them all at the hospital. He had all of those guys, those ball players at the hospital in the meantime. So when he got the uh, Leon was uh, they had took Leon to have some tests made, and Leon didn't know that they was there. But when they were, they were bringing Leon back to his room, where well, I wasn't there at that time, but they was telling me because I got up there later. And uh, because I thought I would get up that time enough to hear, you know, to see the expression on his face whenever he, you know, so I didn't know they was taking him out for tests. So, but anyway, whenever they brought him back, uh, Max Manning uh, kneeled over and told him, man, you're in, you're in. And, um, and uh, Leon started crying. So, uh, but anyway, I got up. They uh they always in the room partying and everything, but you know, <laughs> they you know they had they had like sodas and potato chips and you know stuff like that. And and uh so uh Leon, the doctor was in there because he wouldn't let but uh one uh uh, uh TV uh thing come in Shutter, at the uh-huh. time, mm-hmm. you know. So now that's just how bad Leon Hart was. So the doctor stayed in there the whole while that everybody was in, in there. And uh, so I I got up there. So now I got a phone call and uh, um, Max Manning gave him the phone. So um, and um, uh, Monty Eric and Ray Dandry had already got uh, Leon an uh, agent, uh, the agent, right? Yes, because, yes. Uh, and uh, so um, uh, the agent, it was the agent on the phone. So they told Leon, you know, I heard that you got in, you was in. He said, now I want you to get well. He says, because uh, I got a show in um, New York for you at the end of March. And uh, he says, and it pays $9,000 for two hours. They only have to sign for two hours, for two hours. And said, and if you, I, I guarantee you send the $5,000 for the rest of this year and you'll guarantee $100,000 next year. So get well. So Leon got off the phone. He was just grinning. We were just, he, he was like he had lit up the whole room, laughing like <laughs> you got not laughing. He had lit up the whole room. And so uh, he said the doctor was sitting over, you know, and he said, hey, doc, doc. So now the doctor jumped up and he was scared and run. Oh, what's the matter? What's the matter? Leon looked at him. He said, Doctor, you got to get me out this out this hospital now. He said, because I'm the nine million dollar man now. (laughs) 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 And everybody fell out and started laughing. He said, Doc, but it scared the doctor. You know, Doc thought something was going on oh, yes. when he called him over there. Doc, 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 you can get over here. Doc, Doc, run over there. I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? He said, Doc, you got to get me out of this hospital now because I'm the nine million dollar man now. So, that's, so that's, that is yeah. that, that is absolutely precious. Uh, and as fate would have it, your late husband passed away Six days later. Six days later, he passed away. Six days later. Yeah. yeah it, it, it broke all of our hearts, although, again, it, it was mixed emotions. Obviously, we were just thrilled that he had gotten his coronation with the recognition of being 
in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But we wanted him to be there to relate to the people. Hear more from Geraldine Day next season on Black Diamonds. Coming up next, the seven former Negro League stars on the early baseball era ballots, plus one on the Golden Days era ballot that will have their chance to posthumously join Leon Day in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the Sirius XM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. On December 5th, the Early Baseball Era Committee is scheduled to vote on the Hall of Fame induction of seven Negro League icons plus three early American and national leaguers. The committee is comprised of 16 members. They can only vote for four players out of this list of 10. So it is going to be highly competitive and it's going to lead to some anxious moments for all of us here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as we await announcement of the fate of those in particular Negro League players who are on this year's Hall of Fame ballot. There are several guys that I think have a real legitimate shot. The numbers is what concerns me. The numbers, the way that this is set up number-wise, is going to make it difficult to get very many Negro League players in. If I was a betting man, I'd say likely two. And that's a shame because out of all seven of those who are on that ballot, all of them deserve to be in. We start with John Donaldson. And of course, we had a great episode on John Wesley Donaldson. The numbers are absolutely staggering when we talk about John Donaldson. And when we did the episode of the Black Aces, and I started running off some of these almost MLB show video game numbers that John Donaldson put up. You know, you can see the expression because we would we tape these episodes via Zoom and to see the expressions on CeCe Sabathia's face and David Price and, and of course, Dave Stewart when we were running off these numbers, man, it, it just was mind boggling for them. But just to recap, he is known to have played baseball in more than 550 cities. Struck out 500 batters three consecutive years. Over 90% of his known pitching appearances were complete games. Through 30 consecutive no-hit innings in 1913. He has over 400 verifiable wins and over 5,000 strikeouts. Bob Kendrick, along with Dave Stewart, CeCe Sabathia, and David Price on the Black Diamonds episode, King of the Monarchs. Now available on the SXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. So when you hear that name, and Stu, I'll start with you. What do you think when you hear those kinds of numbers? Again, this is not hyperbole. It has been verified. Man, when I hear those kind of numbers, <laughs> that poor me a drink, man, make me believe that. <laughs> man, 
Thirty strikeouts in a game? Thirty Man. times. <laughs> Eleven times the twenty-five strikeouts. <laughs> Five thousand for a career? For a career, and these are verified thanks to the Donaldson Network. He, he invented the cutter too, right? Yes, he invented what they he called invented the cutter. cutter. Yeah. Yeah. Donaldson was nasty, man. And, and yeah. we, they found some rare video of him, and you can see his delivery on the mound. And you could tell he had the goods as well. And that's who Satchel wanted to emulate. Satchel wanted to be like John Donaldson. But yeah, as me, do, me too. <laughs> His fastball was compared to that of a cannonball. And some said when it came across the plate, it looked like a pea. Some said he made the peel do everything but turn around and come back again. <laughs> and there were some in the stands who claimed that he could do that also. And yet he doesn't have the same cachet as some of the other legendary Negro League stars because John Donaldson, folks, played in the early era of black baseball. And honestly, by the time the Negro Leagues were formed in 1920, John Donaldson had a lot of wear and tear on his body, but he had also been a hired hand of the legendary James Leslie Wilkinson. But before Wilkie brought his Monarchs in as one of the inaugural eight teams that formed the Negro Leagues in 1920, he had a team called the All Nations. And I guess the best way to describe the All Nations would be that it was somewhat of a homogenous group of athletes made of a black, white, Native American, Hispanic, all of them playing together. I guess that's one of the reasons that I say Wilkinson really never saw color. He just saw talent. And the star of that all-nations team was John Wesley Donaldson. And it would be easier to tell you the places that he didn't pitch than it would be to tell you all the places and all the teams that he pitched for because Donaldson was literally a hired hand. We can give it a shot. Starting in 1908 and through his final recorded appearances in 1949 at the age of 58, fans could see John Donaldson pitching for the Hanukkah Blues of Glasgow, Missouri, the Black Tigers of Higby, Missouri, W.A. Brown's Tennessee Rats of Iowa, the All Nations across the Midwest, the Kansas City Colts, the Royal Poinciana Nine of Palm Beach, Florida, the Los Angeles White Sox, the Indianapolis ABCs, the Detroit Stars, the Chicago American Giants, and the Kansas City Monarchs, touring across the state of Minnesota with the Bertha Baseball Club, and through Montana and Saskatchewan for the great barnstorming team of the House of David Religious commune, Robert Gilkerson's Union Giants, Joe Green's Chicago Giants, the Sioux City Ghosts, and briefly, the Sioux City Stockyards. For Satchel Page's All-Stars in 1939, and for a good portion of the 1930s, the John Donaldson All-Stars themselves. And that's just the teams with names. More than 700 appearances have been documented through the great work of the Donaldson Network, Pete Gordon and his team over at the Donaldson Network, who have dedicated themselves for the last 20 plus years of unearthing the story of John Donaldson to quantify and verify just how amazing this ball player was. And while he didn't get many opportunities to play against major league stars, there were a couple of opportunities that stand out. One of such, while playing with the Los Angeles White Sox, a barnstorming Winter League Negro Leagues team facing Yankees like Irish Musil. 
and beating 20-game winners like Pete Snyder. New York Giants manager John McGraw said he was the greatest he'd ever seen, even offering him $10,000 to change his name, move to Cuba, and then come to the big leagues in order to exploit the loophole on segregation. Donaldson, a man of not only deep faith but high integrity, refused that offer. As he would go on to say, I am not ashamed of my skin color. John Donaldson continued to make history long after his professional playing career and after his final documented competitive appearance at the age of 58. In 1949, two years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier that had denied Donaldson for a lifetime, the Chicago White Sox made John Donaldson the first full-time black scout in Major League Baseball history. Here's what the great Russ Cowens wrote about Donaldson for the Chicago Defender. One of the greatest Southpaws ever to step on the mound has been signed by a Major League team. But the slender Southpaw will not be tossing up his twisters to puzzle batters. Instead, he'll be scouring the woods and beating the bushes in search of promising young players for the Chicago White Sox. Take 30 years off John Donaldson's age, and he could sign with the White Sox as a starting pitcher. In his youth, Donaldson had the native ability to win a pitching assignment with any major league club. It would be John Donaldson who would sign the Chicago White Sox first black player, first baseman Bob Boyd as well as the patriarch of Major League Baseball's most prolific family, the great Sam Hairston. Bud Fowler, the first professional black baseball player, because Bud Fowler was a professional well before these great black teams were forming prior to the formation of the Negro Leagues. He was instrumental in helping put together the legendary Page Fence Giants. Yeah, uh, he was a preeminent ball player in the dead ball era and in the early era of black baseball. Vicious Vic Harris. We talked about him a little bit in our episode on the Homestead Grades. Vic Harris was a great baseball player, a great baseball mind who managed some of the greatest baseball teams in all in, in all of baseball history, he just happened to be there with the great Homestead Graves. He won seven Negro League pennants and also led the Graves to the 1948 Negro League World Series. He was a tenacious competitor, fast, aggressive, daring on the base paths, absolutely deserves consideration for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. There's no overselling the greatness of Vic Harris and his 23-year career as both an outfielder and a manager with the Homestead Grays, the most dominant franchise in baseball history. Here's Bob from the Homestead Grays, a Black Diamonds episode available now on the SXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. So now when we stop to think about great teams of all time, and for those of us who are baseball fans, We've consistently heard about the 1927 New York Yankees and just how powerful they were. And there is no question, they were just as powerful as people have made them out to be. But there is a team in particular 
1931 Homestead Grays that just might have rivaled that great 1927 New York Yankees team. Let me run off just a few names that were part of that Homestead Grays lineup in 1931. We're talking about future Hall of Famers, Josh Gibson, Boo June Wilson. His name was actually Judd Wilson. They called him Boo June Wilson because of the sound that the ball, his line drives made off the wall when they hit the wall, Boo June. And so Judd Boo June Wilson, the great Oscar Charleston, Willie Foster, and Smokey Joe Williams were future Hall of Famers in that lineup. Now, that is before we get to perennial all-stars in George Scales, Ted Page, and, of course, the great Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. Double Duty told me that he always thought the 1931 Homestead Grays was the greatest team that he ever played on. And if you go back and look at Duty's tenure in the Negro Leagues, you'll see that he played for a number of great Negro League teams during his Hall of Fame-worthy Negro Leagues career. That 31 team was absolutely amazing. The feats that they accomplished in 31 is second to none. Kansas City historian Phil Dixon, who is one of the top historians and researchers in the country, went to work to pull together box scores from virtually every 1931 Homestead Grays game from that season. And according to his research, the Grays finished with a 143-29-2 record, which is equivalent to an 828 winning percentage. That season, Josh Gibson hit 390 with 40 home runs. Oscar Charleston batted 346 with 58 doubles and 19 home runs, and what is believed to be 26 triples. Third baseman Boo June Wilson only hit 486 that season, and outfielder and later manager of the Grays, Vic Harris, hit an estimated 403. Lefty Williams won 23 games, and was joined in the 20-win club by George Chippy Britt, who won 21 that season, Willie Foster, who won 20, and Smokey Joe Williams, who accounted for 20 wins. They had a dominating pitching staff. They had a fearsome offensive lineup, and they had a group of personalities who not only wanted to beat you on the field, but they beat you in a fight as well. Grant Home Run Johnson, shortstop and second base, again, primarily in the pre-era of the Negro Leagues, but also was part of helping foul a form that legendary Page Fence Giants team. And Home Run Johnson played also on some of the greatest black baseball teams of all time. He, for a second baseman, for a middle infielder, he had great power. Uh, particularly in that era, uh, uh, what we now deem to be the dead ball era. <laughs> One of my favorites, Dick Cannonball Reddy. If your nickname is Cannonball, you can imagine that he was a great pitcher that had an explosive fastball. How explosive? Legend has it 
that Dick Cannonball Redding could throw a baseball or once threw a baseball against a concrete wall and the ball exploded. And that the fact that he said, the writers would say that he had three pitches. <laughs> he had a fastball on the inside corner, a fastball on the outside corner, and a fastball right down the middle, and you couldn't hit either one of those pitches. Uh, his, his fastball was explosive. He was one of the big stars of the early era of black baseball. Ben Taylor, who is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, was one of those Negro Leaguers who did get in in 2006. Uh, he, he said that hitting Dick Cannonball Redding's fastball was virtually impossible. He says, how do you know? Because I tried and couldn't do it. And Ben Taylor was a great hitter. And then, of course, the likes of George Tubby Scales. Not a household name, but a very important player in Negro Leagues and Black baseball history. Compiled a Negro Leagues career batting average of 318 and a 505 slugging percentage. Overall career batting average of 328 against all levels of competition, including major leaguers. Uh, he was part of some great teams, including the Homestead Grays. And what strikes me is if Vic Harris and George Tubby Scales were both to get in to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, that would give the 1931 Homestead Grays seven Hall of Famers in that lineup and the great possibility number eight could later on be Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. That 31 Grays team, guys, were absolutely outstanding. Coming up, Bob remembers the final candidate from Negro Leagues Baseball on the early baseball era Hall of Fame ballot, someone who's near and dear to his heart, the late great Buck O'Neill on Black Diamonds. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the Sirius XM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. Here's the final candidate from Negro Leagues Baseball on this year's Early Baseball Era Hall of Fame ballot, Buck O'Neill, speaking at the Hall of Fame induction of his peers in 2006. I've done a lot of places. I've done a lot of things that I really like doing. I hit the home run. I hit the Grand Slam home run. I hit for the cycle. I've had a hole in one in golf. <laughs> I've done a lot of things I like doing. I shook hands with President Truman. Yeah. So, oh, man. I took all oh, with the other president, and I am the hug his wife, Hillary. So I've done a lot of things I like doing, but I'd rather be right here right now representing these people that helped build a bridge across the chasm of prejudice, not just the ones like 
Charlie Pride and me that later crossed it. Yeah, this is quite an honor for me. See, I played in the Negro League. The great Buck O'Neill. Seven decades of impactful baseball throughout his illustrious career. He did it all. It is oftentimes overlooked at just how great a first baseman Buck O'Neill was. 288 lifetime hitter, line drive with some power, tremendous leader, great manager, groundbreaking scout, barrier-breaking coach, the first in Major League Baseball history with the Chicago Cubs in 1962, and of course would become the voice of the Negro Leagues through his compelling narration of Ken Burns' epic documentary on the history of baseball. He stole the show. America fell in love with Buck O'Neill. He was 82 years old at that time. And as he would oftentimes tell me, Bob, I've been telling these stories for 40 years and nobody ever listened. And Ken Burns gave him a platform and people listened and they still haven't stopped listening. Here's author, biographer, and longtime friend Joe Posnanski on Life with Buck O'Neill from Four Buck, a Black Diamonds episode available now on the SXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. So we were in Atlanta and we were leaving <laughs> Atlanta. You, you know where I'm going with this. And and we're getting ready to we we get off the little train that you know that takes you to your to your gate, to your, you know, to your terminal. And the escalator is out. And Buck, you know, we're like, hey, Buck, let's go around and go to the elevator. And Buck's like, no, 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 we can walk. We can walk up the escalator. And that is the longest escalator in the world, I believe. <laughs> it certainly felt that way. And we were walking up that thing, and about halfway, maybe not even halfway, Buck was like, uh oh. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> Buck was like, this might not have been the best decision. I mean, there, there had to be, it it was honestly, I mean, you can see it if you're ever in Atlanta. It's it's a hundred steps. I mean, it's it's it is truly ridiculous. Yeah, and it goes straight up. Straight up. Yeah, yeah it's going straight it, up. Yeah. We were dying. I mean, forget, forget Bob. <laughs> we were dying. You and me were like, what in the world is happening? But here's what I remember. We never talk about this part. There were a whole bunch of people behind us, a whole bunch, because they were walking up too. And not one of them was complaining that we were holding him up. Every one of them was just rooting for Buck to make it to the top. <laughs> Every single one of them. And then there was, that's, who else would be like that, right? I mean, like that, that just was who Buck O'Neill was. You, you know, you, you raised earlier all of these things that Buck accomplished and his body of work. As a great player with the, with the Monarchs, a great manager, as we both know, he would move in and become a groundbreaking scout, sign some incredible talent. Sure. Ernie Banks, Lou Brock, Lee Arthur Smith, these are Hall of Famers. Hopefully one day Joe Carter will join that group as a Hall of Famer. Uh, and then a litany of secondary players who were very yeah. good ball players. Oh when you start Oscar to talk about Gamble Oscar Gamble and, yeah, and people like that and becoming the first African-American coach in Major League Baseball history in 1962 with the Chicago Cubs, then becoming arguably baseball's greatest ambassador of this game, basically elevated the awareness of the Negro Leagues, built the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, 
then why in the hell is he not in the National <laughs> Baseball Hall of Fame? <laughs> so you have to bring us down now, Bob, right? Like, there was no way around this. Um, I think we know why, right? I mean, obviously, you and I can spend the next four days talking about it if people want to hear it, right? I mean, we have lots of thoughts. But I think, and I think Buck got this too, Buck's career was so vast and so complete in so many ways that I really truly do believe that there were some who just couldn't get their arms around it. Like they would say, well, was Buck a good enough player to be in the baseball hall of fame? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't right. I mean, you can, he was a very good player, but certainly there were better players as he often said, there are better Negro leagues players, not in the hall of fame right now than Buck O'Neill. Was he a great manager? Yes, of course he was, but he wasn't a manager that long and 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 really managed most of his great teams after uh, integration began. Not not as you and I both talk about. People always talk about forty seven, but the the league wasn't integrated, you know, fully until fifty nine. Exactly. And really wasn't integrated hardly at all until the mid fifties. I mean, there, there were three or four teams and that was it until about 53. So, uh, but still that's when he was, had his most success. Um, First African-American coach, obviously an amazing achievement. That alone doesn't get you into the hall of fame. There was a great scout. They don't put scouts in the hall of fame. So there's all of these things that like, if you want to piecemeal it, you know, it's sort of, uh, I, I think I, I said, you know, that it's like, it's like Leonardo da Vinci. It's like, if you want to say, was da Vinci a hall of fame scientist or a hall of fame painter or a hall of fame, uh, you know, philosopher, and you can like break them down. It's like, no, he was a hall of famer. Right. And that's, that's what we know is true about Bach. But I think people miss that. 15 years later, Buck O'Neill's fans have remained as vigilant now as they were when he was omitted in 2006. And of course, you could make a case for Bucks deserving to be in the Hall of Fame just for the work that he did alone in building this great museum, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so it is indeed exciting to see Negro League players again represented on that ballot for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's going to be excruciating, waiting to get the word. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention again Minnie Minoso because Minnie, without question, was Latino Jackie Robinson. And as we said in the previous episode, as we talked about the great Hispanic ball players who called the Negro Leagues home, Minnie Minoso put the go in the go-go White Sox. Minnie Minoso was a dynamic player who endeared himself to two nations, both Cuba and the United States. And he gave hope for Hispanic ballplayers that they too would have an opportunity to play this game. And as I had an opportunity to sit down recently with Eduardo Perez and Jose Contreras to talk about Manny Minoso's case for getting in the Hall of Fame, it became quite evident of what he meant to the Cuban-born ballplayer. And to hear Eduardo talk about his father, Hall of Famer Tony Perez, and how he adored 
many Minoso. And to hear Jose Contreras, who is years later, talk about what Mene Minoso meant to him as a kid dreaming of playing the game of baseball. It is important that he get that coronation. And, and I ask myself, and we talk about this a lot, can you tell the story of baseball without Buck O'Neill and without Mene Minoso? And I don't think you can. And if you do, it's an incomplete story. So, yes, we'll be waiting anxiously here. Y'all say a prayer for old Bob because he's going to need a little help come December the 5th. Uh, and we'll likely have a little ceremony one way or the other here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum as we await the news, not only of Buck O'Neill, but of the other Negro League players who are represented on this 2021 Hall of Fame ballot. And, and so, yeah, as I've reminded people, cross your fingers. Cross your arms, cross your legs, and if you can cross your eyes, cross those two in hopes that we can get a little divine intervention and get some of these guys in the National Baseball Hall of Fame where they absolutely deserve to be recognized. If you enjoy these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.